Welcome to the City Collective Church Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that in today's message, you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. You may take your seats. We are going to continue morning in, uh, forward in our morning, afternoon, time together, Sunday service. I can't remember last time we did a, uh, like a 12.30 service, so I don't even know the, the correct thing to say around that. But uh, thanks for joining us this morning. We are launching our year forward into what we believe is, the, the, the phrase that we're leaning into for this upcoming year is to be a discipleship-driven community. And that, that can be a, a, a nice phrase to present and to, to, to just say out loud, but one of the, the key attributes that we want to hold this year as a community that is being discipleship-driven is the concept of intellectual honesty. Uh, we believe that if, if Christianity is true, then we should have no fear to ask the hard questions of it. That if what we believe is truly more than just an experience or a feeling, but a truth that echoes throughout eternity, we can engage with it with open hearts, open eyes, and open minds. So one of the things that we did over the course of the summer is we, we laid out our, our year from September through uh, August next year, and we were hoping to get a healthy diet. Everyone has their preferences when they preach. I, I, I'm guilty of that as well, that if you're going week by week, you kind of lean into your preference. But we wanted to make sure there was a holistic diet to what we're engaging with as a community. And to start our year, we decided that we are going to jump right in and we're going to have a conversation of deconstruction. So over the course of the next six weeks, starting today, we're going to be dealing with some of these wider themes. And I want, to, I want to address this right up front. If you are in a space where you feel like deconstruction is where you're at, I hope you feel so welcome. And I also hope you feel, don't feel like the church is trying to commandeer or just take away exactly what you're experiencing and feeling. We want this to be a safe place. I think often the church has actually been an unsafe place for these conversations to, take, to happen. And, and, and for us at City Collective, we want these conversations to be full of, of real questions and possibility and grieving and hope, all simultaneously being held because far too often the manner in which we approach situations is completely black or completely white when in reality, I think there's a lot of color in the world. I think these conversations are far more nuanced than we give them credit. So we're going to do our very best to, to deal with some of these big ideas and big topics. Uh, we're going to be dealing today, we're dumping head first, we're talking about church history, atrocities and hypocrisies of the church. Uh, next week we're going to be dealing, is the Bible trustworthy? The following week, what is the purpose of the church the week after, who is Jesus? And then on week five, we're going to actually just do it as a Q&R, a question and a response Sunday. 
Uh, starting next week, we'll start gathering up some of your questions because the reality is we're not going to deal, be able to deal with every little thing that uh, we're asking in this. We're hoping to deal with as much as possible, but we want it to be an open and safe space. And Pastor Zoe and I are going to spend some time up here and we're going to do our very best to engage with it. And then in week six, we're going to actually hear from a few different people in our church about where their journey of faith has, faith, of faith has taken them. So um, I hope that gives you a good sense of where we are where we're going, and I hope it gets you excited, maybe a little nervous. <laughs> like, I don't know if I want to ask these questions, or I have been asking these questions, and it's been really nice to do in isolation, but what do I do when it's a conversation? It's a little different. So to get us started, I want to just define for you the, the word deconstruction. It is a stage or process of revisiting, re-examining, and rethinking one's religious beliefs that were previously believed or perhaps assumed to be true. Baseline. So we're going to jump into it, and, and I also want to plug, we're going to be dealing with these conversations in the midst of our community groups as well, which we'll be getting going next, uh, next week. And so conversations started here. We really want them to spill into the life of our church, and we can really engage with them. Are you with me? We're going to get into it? All right. Big idea for this Sunday. What do we do with the atrocities and hypocrisies of church history? <laughs> Colossians 3, Paul is writing to the church and he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. When you reflect on church history, I'm not sure if the first words that come to mind are compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, nonviolence. And that's, that's the reality. We're, we're not here this morning to, to act as if those things have not taken place. But the question we're asking is, what do we do with it? How do we really engage with it? Uh, everyone has a, like a music listening platform, Apple, Spotify. You still got your own old like iPod that's got 64 gigs and like you're just rolling through that. What if maybe, that, maybe you still got that. Uh, everyone's got their playlist that they love on their, on their go-to list. For me, it is piano in the background. I always have piano going on in the background. I find it calming, find it restful, inspiring, motivating, all the above, all the adjectives you can think of. I love when it comes to piano. I love listening to piano, and I, I find so much joy in watching someone who has the ability to beautifully com compose and create a moment that just captures our imagination through those twinkling of those beautiful ivories. Uh, my, my, favorite, my favorite modern composition is Yoruma's River Flows in You. Do you know it? Have you heard it? I hope you have because it's beautiful. I, I, Adriana actually walked down the aisle to it. Just like, just a spectacular song. I was crying because my wife was beautiful and she was coming down the aisle, but also because the music was really beautiful at the same time. It was all the above. It was amazing. It was like the full moment. It was spiritual in so many ways. 
And then in the midst of it, uh, I, I would like to say that I would appreciate the ability to, to learn how to do it. So we're going to do this together. I've watched one YouTube video on how to do this, and it has not gone well. I literally just tried with Neftali, and she laughed at me, and she thought I was trying to play, play fair Elise. So um, it was like, that's all I got. Uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you. And here's the funny piece. Uh, I grew up playing piano. I spent four years playing piano, going to recitals, having my mother tell me I need to be practicing piano. I, I grew up playing it. I saw other people playing piano. I loved listening to piano. I would invest, and I will invest, time and energy into piano and into that composition. But despite it all, it's not so simple to actually capture and share the beautiful melody that we know as river flows in you. Micah, could you just play it for a real quick second just so everyone can, can capture it for just a moment? All right, before I start crying again, let's, let's get it up on. No, that's good. <laughs> so now hearing me, I think you could be forgiven for wondering whether your rumor really knew what he was doing when he was writing a tune. But I think most of us have a vague idea of how the original is meant to sound, and we just heard it for ourselves. And when we deal with this kind of situation, we might suspend judgment about the melody itself and blame, put, place blame where it belongs. My playing. We know to distinguish between the composition and the performance. And I believe that's something worth pondering when considering Jesus Christ and the history of the church. Jesus wrote a beautiful composition. And Christians have not performed it well. Sometimes they have been badly out of tune, and occasionally they have played something completely different. And when we turn to contemplate the original melody, Christ actually makes Christians look bad. Because there are distinctive melodies presented by Jesus that have been simultaneously provided to us through the centuries, and actually expose moments and seasons and eras of Christian hypocrisy. 2,000 words from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount resonate through time. Even ardent atheists like Richard Dawkins grudgingly admit that it was way ahead of its time because it spoke counter to what the world looked like at the time. Now, by no means am I here to suggest that all of the concepts that Jesus has presented in his lifetime are completely novel in antiquity. But specifically, when it comes to the ethic of love, this was not the manner in which the world saw each other. Love does not feature in the best-known moral codes of the pagan world. Universal love isn't in the Proverbs of Egypt. It's not in the, the Coda, the Hammurabi. 
the ethics of Plato and Aristotle, the 147 maxims of Delphi, we find that, that all these things actually encompass what are called the four cardinal virtues of antiquity, justice, courage, wisdom, and moderation. Love, mercy, humility, and non-retaliation were not a part of the ideological mindset of the world prior to Jesus, except where Jesus was based out of, and that was his Jewish background. And Jesus takes the original idea within his Jewish background of this ethic of love, and he intensifies it. He takes it to another degree. And, and I, I, I want to take this, want to take a historical vantage point of this, that we can look at something like the Sermon on the Mount, where, where Jesus gives a, a grand conversation of what love really looks like. And we can draw a line to the cross and see how Jesus shows us what love really looks like. The love ethic that Jesus presents is not just an arbitrary idea. And it's not just even a mere intensification of one command, nor an altruistic identity. It is Christ's legacy in the world. And this point wasn't lost on the followers of Jesus, especially within the first century. Within a generation of Jesus, one of his disciples, John, is writing to the modern, well, Christians in modern-day Turkey. And he says in 1 John 3.16, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. So the first melody that Christ presents is this love ethic. And the second melody that we can see within the scriptures and within the teachings of Jesus is this idea of the Magio Dei. It's the image of God. Jews and Christians insisted that every man, woman, and child is created in the image of God. And as a result, everyone possesses equal and unquestionable worth. And perhaps you're saying, of course, but this was not how the world thought. There are some very normalized lines of thinking. There's a letter that was sent out by a centurion to his family. And it, he, it was outlining what to do if his wife gets pregnant. And he says, if, if you have a son, keep it. If you have a daughter, just throw her outside. And, and it's actually a letter that is actually very nonchalant. As if that is just the norm in which people operated, no one would be perturbed to see or read such a thing. It's because there was no principle of equal and unestimable worth that existed before the idea of the image of God truly became part of our culture. So the, the Rhythms of Christ, the melody of Christ. There is a wide breadth of things we could talk about, but the two that I think are the legacies of Christ that have spilled over and done the greatest good and, and transformed our world is the ethic of love and the doctrine of the image of God. In 1776, the U.S. Congress, they, they draft the Constitution. Thomas Jefferson, who was probably one of the more secular individuals who was contributing towards it, outlines the image of God referencing 
the Bible. In 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights ratified by the UN makes a similar claim saying all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights and they're endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. This is founded in the teachings and in the person of Jesus. And sometimes to make these grand declarations, they feel odd because the church's record on human rights is difficult to, small, so difficult to swallow. Samuel Moyne, professor of law and history at Yale, and he's a known critic of church history, he says, I don't doubt that Jesus Christ in particular brought about revolution in thinking of people as equal in the sight of God. The notion of the image of God lies at the, at the heart of the Christian view of human dignity. And as theological as that might sound, it should have immediate social implications. It means this. It means that I am to treat other human beings as having infinite dignity as the offspring of the creator. That, that the value of someone is, is intrinsic and, and there's an ineffable worth but it's not based on capacity or usefulness, which was often the narrative in antiquity. So I wanted to outline, right off the bat, before we talk about the, the nitty-gritty of history, we'll do a little history lesson. Sorry to all the students. But uh, the, the melody, the composition of Christ, one of love and of one of being made in the image of God, of, of worth, has been poorly performed by the church in history. But I wonder if we have made the mistake of simply hearing the performance and then blaming the composition. The biggest tree selfishness and violence of the church are not just departure from broad humanitarian principles. They are a betrayal of the specific mandate Jesus gave his disciples. And for this, we, we need to be held accountable. And for this, we need to learn. Like I said, modern secular standards can maybe make Christianity look bad. Jesus Christ makes them look worse. And he actually demands something interesting. He demands that his followers be the first to admit this. Both in the Gospel of Matthew and both in the Gospel of Luke, he, he, he invites his disciples, his followers, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye but do not notice the log in your own eye? That is to say followers of Jesus need to be experts in noticing the log in their own eyes, freely admitting it and taking it out, because there are, there are good complaints. The Inquisition, the crusade, Crusades, colonialism, all part of Christianity's expansion in the world, and we've seen some pretty awful things done in the name of Jesus. Yet, the question I want to ask is, are the actions undertaken in harmony with what Jesus presented? So like I said, we're going to go through a bit of a walk through history, um, please understand, this is an overview. <laughs> uh, if you want to do a deep dive, I highly encourage it. 
there's, there's a book that I think is super accessible, and it's a great read. It's by an individual by the name of John Dixon, and it's called Bullies and Saints. And if you're looking to go a little bit deeper for your overview, it's a great one to dive into that's pretty accessible. It's not, it's not a textbook, um, but it does a great job of, of sourcing well and, and using references that are appropriate in the process and not just isolating from a Christian perspective. It's, it's really strong. So let's, let's, let's work it all the way back from the early church. Um, secular historians, someone like Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, but an individual by the name of Tom Holland, he, uh, they, they also acknowledge this, the simple, it's fairly uncontroversial to say this, that Christianity gave the early West, essentially the developing West, a world West of Syria, the notion of charity, the idea that every human is equally valuable, the ethic of humility, and the notion that you can do great good in the world without power. Because the early Christians, for the first 300 years, they, they didn't need, and they thought they didn't need, legislative or political power. They ate, they prayed, they served, and they suffered. And they believed that they could change the world, and they did. And, and of course, the counterpoint to that is that they didn't keep doing that. But we're looking at this early church movement. And most, most historians, when they identify this, this movement within the first 300 years, they have no good explanation for why it took off. They were being executed, tortured, they were hated, and yet they were training up the masses, they were evangelizing, they were serving the poor, and so on. And the early, early Christians, they set up communities, a.k.a. churches, that, that had everything, and there was nothing like it in the world. Schools, welfare programs, freeing slaves, starting hospitals, caring for one another. And whenever, whenever someone came and beat them up, they smiled sweetly. And society was completely amazed at these people. It started as a non-political movement, and then there were things that went wrong. beginning of the fourth century, um, is what often people attribute to a, a major shift, and they kind of blame it on it. And I don't think, again, like I said at the beginning, uh, it's not as black and white as sometimes we perceive it to be. I think immediately we say, uh, if you maybe heard the individual Constantine, Constantine, Roman emperor, becomes a Christian, beginning of the fourth century, a beginning of political power within the local church, within the Christian communities, and people say, that's where everything went wrong. And I would say that we have things to learn about how power is used. But when it came to Constantine, he has this dramatic spiritual experience. And he says, to, he says to all around him, I am now a Christian. And what he actually does is not simply just give massive power to the Christian church at the time. Instead, what Constantine does is he simply allows Christians the same privileges that, they were, that the synagogues and the temples had. They were now free to worship. And they were given a tax break for the first time. And the difference for the church at that time receiving the tax break is they now didn't have a mandate to do anything with that welfare opportunity. And unlike the other institutions around them, they used that money to greatly serve and help the poor. And suddenly they started to explode with the potential of their generosity. There were issues within some of the things that Constantine implemented in terms of power, 
in terms of uh, structure. But ultimately, the, the thing that he did was he made Christianity legal. And then upon his, the end of his reign, they tried to stamp out Christianity almost right away. <laughs> and there's about like a 40-year period um, where there's different individuals who came into power and they, they tried to wipe out Christianity and they had so much issue with the, Christi- with the tr- Christian church being so generous that they started to force the pagan temples to actually do that as well. And if you don't do it, then we're not going to give you the support because clearly the only reason people are becoming Christians is because they're showing what it means to be generous with the opportunity of welfare. And this, is what, this was the, the narrative that took place. And as this started to happen, there was a shift in the means in which the church started to integrate and relate with power. It started as a non-political movement, but it began to shift. And around the 380s, about 40% of the Roman Empire is now Christian. Emperors are now extending their power to the point that by the 4th century, they're banning pagan temples at this point, and we're beginning to see a mixture of politics, power, and the church. And it's, it's such a weird paradox, and this is the issue that we see throughout history, that if you were to go to the city of Milan and you were to ask someone about St. Ambrose, Ambrose was a senator that was dropped in as a bishop. And so he acted like a governor. That's what he knew what, he knew what to do. But if you ask the poorest of the poor in that area what they thought of St. Ambrose, they would love him because of the generosity and the manner in which he was caring for them. And then if you ask the non-Christians of the elite in the area, they would have massive issue because they were starting to take away rights afforded to them. And this is the consistent paradox that we see throughout church history, where the melody of Christ the love and the generosity, seeing people with equal and inestimable worth was still working and at work within the cultures that were inheriting Christianity. But yet when power began to start to become the priority, that's when you saw things go a little sideways. Here's the heartbeat. The heartbeat of the Christian faith is that God entered into the world as a humble human being, lived a life that none of us could live perfectly, gave his life on a cross for us and rose again, and the whole narrative trajectory of Jesus is a rejection of power. It is a laying down of life. It is letting the powerful Roman conquerors conquer him. So when Christians take up power and they think they can achieve God's end using power and control, it can be a contradiction to the very center of our faith. And it often is a problem. But here's the thing, it doesn't have to be also. This is the nuance. When churches are allowed power, they also humbly use it for the sake of others and not just themselves. This is what you see in the 360s and 370s when where bishops, uh, Basil of Caesarea and Gregory of Nicaea, they have the ear of secular powers. This is where hospitals were born out of, where you saw the, the, the mass growth of, of actual health care for those that couldn't afford it actually start to take place because those who were followers of Jesus said, this is what Jesus shows me to do. This is what I'm going to do with the power that I have been given. Did you feel the conflict within it? 
Because then we go forward a thousand years. It's a thousand years from Jesus to the crusade. Where some of the most horrific things that you can imagine were done. In the name of Jesus. And this idea of a just war had infiltrated its way into Christianity. Augustine had talked about it and, and he had outlined four principles of a just war. And if they had probably stuck to those principles, we, we don't run into something like the Crusades. But instead, emperors and, and leaders did what we all are prone to do. And they heard, oh, I can go to war? Great. I have the authority? Awesome. But you'll notice on, on the last one, it says, conducted in a way that left the defeated, defeated party unresentful in loss. I do not think that was the case within the crusade. The, the first crusade that takes place, and uh, we'll put a slide up that kind of outlines it. I'm not going to go too much into detail because we could spend six weeks on the crusades pretty quickly. But um, the first crusade that takes place uh, Awful, horrific. They believe that's about a just war. Um, it's a manipulation of power, about trying to grab land. It's in response to the Byzantine Empire being attacked by the Islamic army that's making its way through the area. And, and they were calling for help. And this was an opportunity for the Western Empire to jump in and, and support. And they, they made it something to do on a spiritual front. And it was, it was dangerous. And they were successful in, in winning back the territory on the first crusade. I think there's a lot of narratives around the crusade that are part of our culture that are interesting, but let me just tell you this. The crusades were wildly unsuccessful. In fact, um, most significant wars in history have a deep impact upon culture, resources, ideologies. The crusades accomplished literally nothing other than keeping the island of Cyprus. Cyprus remained Western and Christian. Nothing else really changed. And all it did was create a massive amount of brokenness and hurt in the world. The First Crusade, they, they were victorious in, in their mind, but ultimately they, they did awful things on the road to the Holy Land. Men, women, children, Jews, Orthodox, Christians, all murdered, slaughtered. Awful things done. To, to the point that is the <laughs> Islamic nations knew Europe for a period of time as simply being cannibals because there was incidents of those soldiers eating people. They'd lost it. The melody completely. And then they tried again and again, and they lost. They, they won. Uh, they would win a, a little battle here, but ultimately lose the war, and the Crusades took place over an extended period of time, created unrest. It actually, on one of the final Crusades, the army actually attacked a Christian city in Constantinople in the name of Jesus. A lot was done 
in the name of Jesus, it did not sound anything like that. I'm not trying to gloss anything over. As, you, as, as history continues, you get to the Middle Ages, and a lot of the conversation around the Middle Ages leads to things like the, the Inquisition. Um, the Inquisition was an awful initiative by the Catholic Church to blot out any what they perceived as heresy, and they operated in, in a mafia-like way in how they started to gather people up and torture them, and there was awful things done, uh, and it took place about, over about 350 years, and things like the denial of science started to become narrative within the Dark Ages with Galileo being part of that Inquisition, him talking about uh, what he had discovered about the earth, and then them denying it as heresy. And the interesting, again, the, the, the conflict within it is there were Christian leaders within the church that were encouraging Galileo to come front and talk about it because they're like, this is brilliant. You got it. <laughs> you figure something out. We should be excited. We should. It was Christians who were helping to push it along as well. The, the Dark Ages in particular, the, the language around it is actually like a propaganda that was pushed forward by, funny enough, by Protestant churches, specifically the Reformers, because they wanted to see change within the Catholic Church, funny enough. But now modern historians, they reflect back on history and they look at all the details of it and they're like, oh, it wasn't as dark as we sometimes make it out to be. There was universities that were built. There was great uh, knowledge and development within, the, within civilization at the time. And it wasn't exactly as we have thought it to be. But power, again, seemed to corrupt. And the narrative continues with colonialism and, and the spread of Christianity by sword instead of by, by uh, welcoming people into community. And, and this became the narrative as they went from country to country, forcing almost Christianity upon people and doing awful things. Things like the residential school system is not isolated to what we have found out in Canada. This is actually just an awful manner in which colonialism was operating and using it as, as an it's almost like a, a covering for them to do what they want freely without checks or accountability. Again, power comes into play and it seems to crush. And then the paradox of that is, is as well, you have people that are coming and partnering alongside and building hospitals and serving the people and teaching and, and being part of communities and and spending time in the culture, this is the paradox of power that we see over and over again. And when the church is allied to power, it can be tempted toward violence and crushing cultures. And all that is worst in us as human beings. But when it is for others, it can be for extreme good. If you read the Gospels, which is truer of Jesus? The giving up of one's power to serve or taking up power to crush? And if we're reading the text with a fair-minded approach, then I would say, if you feel frustrated and, and confused and upset with what has happened in church history, it is because you are asking the church to be more Christian. If your frustration is lying in this area with the church, you are asking the church to be more like Jesus. 
because we have lost the melody many a time. And this continues into the modern world. And there's a lot of narratives that have kind of escalated as almost propaganda about what church has taken, what has taken place in church history. And I'm really unafraid with being honest about what has taken place. But we need to also be honest about sometimes the, the inflation of what we see be numbers between different scenarios. The Inquisition, for example, awful, not, not true to Jesus. Over 350 years, there was about 3,000 to 5,000 people that were killed. In the reign of, of communist Russia, in the time of Joseph Stalin, that was about how many people were killed per week. One, when, when new atheism comes up with the proposition that religion is the source of all warfare and evil, I, I would say that I would disagree. I think that Rome and Greece, eras without religion, eras modern with atheism at the forefront, prove very quickly that it has nothing to do with the church in terms of those moments. It has everything to, to, to do with the brokenness of humanity rearing its ugly face over and over again. And in the modern world, whether we look at uh, communist China, communist Russia, uh, Nazi Germany, the stamping out of religion was the means in which they committed atrocities. Now, I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to say that the numbers done in church history, they're less, therefore they're better. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that when the church gets it wrong, it's because they start looking like the world. And when the world gets it right, they start looking like Jesus. Because the melodies, the legacy of Christ in this world, beyond what we're talking about to place on the cross, we're talking about the teachings of Jesus, the manners and invitations he gives his followers, of love, of generosity, they extend so much farther than simply just a nice idea. They begin to really transform the world that we live in. There's a wide variety of things that are done in the name of Christianity that are in violation of Jesus' teachings himself. Racism, slavery, violence, gender-based oppression, anti-intellectualism, all are done in violations of Jesus' teachings. Is religion blemish-free? No. Is Christianity blemish-free? Absolutely not. But in our questions of deconstruction, because this is what happens in deconstruction, we almost have this this thought or this pillar that we build our faith upon saying, man, the church is the best place in the world. And then someone shows us what happened in the Crusades and that pillar gets knocked over and then our faith is, is done. The church is the best place in the world when it looks like Jesus. And so when the church doesn't look like Jesus, then we have a responsibility to call the church to account. 
society and secular culture has moments where they do good things and they call out negative aspects or evil or harmful aspects of the church. The real change that has taken place within the church throughout history has been reformation from within. Over and over again, it has been faithful followers of Jesus who have been like, we don't sound like the melody of Christ anymore. This doesn't look or sound or feel like anything Jesus would want to be part of. And instead of giving up on the church, those people leaned in because they knew it wasn't about a building, it wasn't about an institution, it was about the life-changing message of Jesus getting into the world, so they were going to fight as hard as they could to make sure that message stayed at the forefront. We're having this conversation of deconstruction because I think it's important. I think it's relevant. I think we need to be intellectually honest. I think we need to be asking these hard questions. And when we do so, I so wholeheartedly believe that you will fall more in love with Jesus than ever before. And out of that love for Jesus, the church will flourish. Because no longer is my foundation the church, my foundation is Christ. And when my foundation is Christ, then Christ through me, there is incredible things that the church can do. You see a world transformed to, to love and care for others. You see things like hospitals and healthcare and charity start to be prominent within church history. You see people come to know Jesus and be invited into the grander story of transforming the, the world in a positive way that shapes it for the better. This is what takes place when Christ is our, is our center and our core. And if you are here this morning and you've grown up in a, in a Christian community or you've been influenced to a place where you've said, man, church itself is my foundation for why I believe in Jesus, I would challenge you, flip the script. Because unfortunately, that is not going to last. But will last. What will last is loving, unconditionally merciful, beautiful melody of Christ that captures us, draws us to tears, and invites us into a better tomorrow. So if this is a pillar that, gets, that maybe I knocked down today because you didn't know about those specific incidents of church history, grace. Because there's something better. That's not the pillar you want. It's not the pillar you need. It's Jesus. And Jesus alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. In a moment like this, we can come before you. Open minds, open hearts, overwhelmed to the point that we are just so grateful to be in your presence. Father, I just, I just feel upon my heart right now. For every person in here, the fact that we are made in your image is also an invitation. this beautiful worth that is within each and every single one of us. And for those who feel like they have gone so far away 
that they don't feel like they're made in the image of God anymore. I pray that you just begin to heal their hearts and show them that that rhythm that was there within them from the very beginning to be made in the image of God, to have that rhythm and that melody within them can be discovered anew, can be found afresh, can be foundational in life moving forward. I just pray that they begin to transform from the inside out. I pray every single person here just discovers and knows that they are made in the image of God, that discovers and knows that they are loved beyond compare. That the legacies that you have left in this world, Jesus, are the legacies of your church moving forward, of your people moving forward. And where we have fallen short, forgive us. We repent. And we, we choose to turn around. And when we fall short again, we know your grace meets us again. Give us the courage today. Give us the boldness today to ask the questions knowing that you meet us within it. To you be the glory the honor, and the praise forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it challenged, encouraged, and inspired you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.